Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. And I'm Michael Pratz. And on this episode, we're going to talk about certificates of needs, uh, head fakes, and uh, CFCC President Jim Morton. All right, well, let's jump into it with the certificate of needs. And if you're listening to this, you might be saying, you know, what is a certificate of need? Um, They're kind of convoluted laws, um, but to make it pretty clear for people to understand what this is, a certificate of need is a government hoop that you have to jump through in order, in North Carolina at least, um, they are in other states as well, uh, but uh, uh, they call them CON, C-O-N, it doesn't mean convict, it's a certificate of need, so if I say CON, that's what I'm referring to, um, but CON laws are basically where you have to go to the government and ask permission to open a healthcare facility, um, to purchase a new MRI machine, uh, things like that, basically to start a new hospital, for example. So let's go anecdotally here. We all know that Wilmington has um, one hospital. Um, you have some other ambulatory services and um, you know other, other facilities, but when it comes to hospitals, um, it's one. That's what you get. Um, and with all the growth in Wilmington, I mean, you and I have both experienced it. Everybody listening has. Wilmington is growing by leaps and bounds. And the need for a new hospital, I think, anecdotally is very apparent. Um, I've gone, I've waited, not hyperbolic at all. I've waited nine hours in the ER to get into a room and then waited another 24 before moving into a regular hospital room. So the need anecdotally is there but people have asked us why i mean you and i have gotten these questions right all the time so why don't we have another hospital well if you want another hospital there has to be a certificate of need issued by the state and one of the weird things with these cons are you cannot get in order to get a certificate of need your competition has to sign off on opening something else in that area so you're going to be really hard pressed to find someone who willingly says like yeah bring in more competition into the region when you're essentially running um and i i don't use this uh to damn anybody but you know it's a basically a monopoly when it comes to hospital services in the cape fear region and in other parts of the state so that's what a, a certificate of need is uh and why we're talking about this is because Things are happening in South Carolina. The governor just signed a bill that will essentially do away with cons for uh, so in three years, the con needs will uh, sunset for hospitals in South Carolina. Um, They will still be relevant for I believe it's nursing home and like elder care facilities. Um, But by and large, cons are going away. And right now in the General Assembly, there's some bills being passed um, to do away with them for like mental health facilities in North Carolina. There is also a lawsuit that the Institute for Justice, and we've talked about them, friends of the show, um, we have worked with them a lot because there's a lot going on in North Carolina that requires constitutional lawsuits, um, apparently, uh, most notably in Wilmington, you'll recognize them from uh, from the short-term rentals um, folly um, that went on for three years, made it to the Court of Appeals. Well, there's a lawsuit that they are hoping the North Carolina Supreme Court takes up um, to 
say basically cons are unconstitutional. Um, Supreme Court has not agreed yet to take that up, but if they do, and you know, theoretically, let's say cons are overturned in North Carolina, um, that would make way for let's. I'm I'm just I'm not promising anybody coming into the region, but let's just say, you know, Duke Healthcare, if they wanted to come and open a hospital, they wouldn't need permission from the state to say, yes, this is needed, you can open up. They would be able to come in. And for the people wondering, this is not about safety or licenses. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, could Ben and Pratt's go open up a hospital? I mean, if we wanted to be on the back end, maybe. Um, but we wouldn't be able to be the doctors. You can't just say, hey, I'm opening a, a healthcare facility. You still have to be licensed and able to practice medicine to open this, um, but it would open the doors to more uh, to more competition and more access to healthcare. Yeah, and the, the thing I wanted to say is that cons kind of fail to address a serious problem in the healthcare industry, which is providing healthcare to rural areas. Um, Mm -hmm. because what this basically does is say you have a downtown area, you know, dense urban core area. And imagine we're talking about fast food franchises. This basically says there's already a McDonald's in downtown Wilmington or downtown Charlotte. You can't put a Burger King in. Sorry, there's already enough burgers being made. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if you live out, say, in a more rural area, say Scotland County, Brunswick County, uh, out, you know, west. Columbus, yeah. Yeah. there's, there's no, the, it doesn't require anyone to build a McDonald's there. You're just SOL. Sorry, no burgers for you. You got to get a car in a car and drive a couple hours. Mm-hmm. So it prevents competition in urban areas, but it doesn't provide any services in rural areas. And the two big problems we hear are high prices due to a lack of competition and a lack of service due to a lack of anyone providing anything in these rural areas. So that's the for the people who have been concerned about what this law would do to the current healthcare landscape, the two big problems, it definitely won't make them worse. Yeah. And that's interesting. You brought that up because earlier on Friday, I spoke with um, uh, an attorney, Jamie Cavanaugh, who is a uh, attorney for the Institute for Justice. She works on both litigation and legislation. She's been helping. She's testified in South Carolina to help get this law passed. Um, And one of the arguments that those who are in support of cons say um, is that number one, um, for for some reason that I'm not opining here, it just logically does not make sense and I'm willing to listen to the arguments, um, but the arguments that, that she was telling me is that people say, well, having cons in place increases, um, increases healthcare and makes it more affordable, which just, I mean, if you understand basic economic supply and demand, when you have um, essentially a state-sponsored monopoly, um, that that's not going to increase competition. Prices are going to go up. Um, and it's not just anecdotally. You look at states that don't have these in place, um, and she was telling me, and I have the, the documents to back it up, healthcare is typically cheaper. It is typically better quality of care because at that point you are competing with other hospitals to be the best, and that's how competition works. Right. So, at the at the risk of being extremely reductive, um, if you do allow two burger restaurants in a downtown area and there are more burgers than people, well, who's going to sell more burgers? The people with the better burgers. Yes. So that's that's the long and short of it. And then when it comes to the more uh, to the less urbanized areas. Um, like you were mentioning here, 
Uh, one of the arguments that she said she's heard is that by co having cons in place um, protects uh, these areas from having healthcare flight, basically. It keeps them in an area. Um, she, I, again, I don't really understand that. I guess the, the logic there would be if they can't go into Wilmington, they're not going to move out of Columbus County, let's say, or wherever. Um, again, I am willing to hear these arguments from someone on that, on that point if it's not just, hey, I want to protect our bottom line and bottom dollar at the hospital here, which, again, I also understand that, but antitrust and anti-monopoly laws are in place for a reason. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's something that, um, you know, Dale Falwell, the state treasurer, also filed a friend of the court, an amicus brief, to the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, supporting the Institute for Justice's cause and asking the Supreme Court to take up their case to review the constitutionality of cons, because at the end of the day, why would the state treasurer get involved? Well, he's in charge of, as he says, he is the public's keeper of the purse. And when you don't have options, prices for health care are on the rise. Treasurer Falwell has been very vocal about his thoughts on health care um, and the prices and insurance and all of that. So he is very supportive of uh, trying to have the courts or the legislature remove cons and the needs for these certificates um, because it, I just am not seeing the evidence that they are necessary and that they do anything besides protect the businesses that already exist. Yeah, so I, I'm fascinated by this and I'm excited to see where it goes in the courts. I know that even people um, who work inside the healthcare industry have been pretty clear that we need some kind of radical overhaul of the healthcare system. So this will not fix all the problems, but I, I am curious to see what the impact this has for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's kind of where it is. This will be one that I wasn't, it really wasn't on my radar until I talked to IJ, but now that it is, I'm really interested. I will keep an eye on that. I know you will as well, because, um, you know, up here in Charlotte, we do have multiple options for healthcare. It's a larger metropolitan area, but Wilmington is getting to be that way. Hospitals take a long time to be built. So, I mean, we saw how long the healing place just a, a, a treatment facility that's not a treatment facility, um, residential, whatever you want to call it. I I'm, I'm, can't go too far down that path. Um, but we saw how long that took to build. And hospitals often cost millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to construct. Yeah. I mean, just a quick so, note, we're doing some reporting on Novant and whether or not Pender County will keep Novant as their contracting operator for the county-owned hospital in Pender County. And if they go with another company, we'll effectively have a competitor just across the county line near us. And it'll be interesting to see how with or without a con that situation will play off. So put a pin in that. We'll definitely be coming back to that. Um, but I want to pivot now and talk about uh, New Hanover County's own Ted Davis. Ted Davis Jr. Ted Davis Jr. Robert Theodore Davis Jr. Uh, All right. So... Introduce him for those who don't know him for us, Ben. Yeah, so Ted Davis was a New Hanover County commissioner. Uh, he then became a state rep. He served many terms. He was, um, I guess, re-gerrymandered out of a very comfortably red district in the southern part of New Hanover County into a much more contentious district uh, where he has held on 
Um, in the in the most recent election, he won by I think a two point margin, just over a two point margin. But it was a close race against a relatively untested Democratic candidate, and that is all background because uh, Ted Davis, who is you know, just a he'll tell yourself he's a small town guy, he's a former federal prosecutor, but he's he's not a national level politician. So I'm sure seeing his own name in the Washington Post, the New York Times, hearing it on NPR National this week, was kind of surreal for him but there's a reason why we were all talking about it yeah and that is the veto override of governor cooper's veto of senate bill 20 um we'll just probably refer to it as the abortion ban the abortion ban laws um because that's what we're talking about no need to be technical with sb20 that's what it is though it's the 12-week abortion um restrictions that have been put in place um and this went through both the North Carolina, both chambers. We went over the chambers of government last week. I hope you were paying attention. Um, so it went both through the Senate and the House. It was passed. Governor Cooper vetoed this over the weekend last Saturday. Um, and there were questions as to whether or not the General Assembly would override that veto. Now, we do know um, that there is that veto-proof majority now in both chambers, but in the house the house it is by one person now it is a tiny tiny um uh, majority that they have that does make it veto proof um so there were questions as to whether or not um you know some of these uh lawmakers would side with the gop or would you know flip and say no i'm not overriding this you can look at the bill um we we talked a little bit about it before but basically 12 weeks is your uh, is a woman's limit now to get an abortion for choice. Then there's exceptions for rape and incest, mother's life, infant mortality, those sorts of things, or I guess, uh, I, I don't know what it's called, but the, you know, the life expectancy of the, the child um, that is, you know, still in the womb, if they are not expected to make it, um, there are these exceptions for it, but 12 weeks is pretty much where it's at. And the reason Ted Davis is in the news is because when you and I and John Evans and our friends over at Port City Daily had this town hall in October of last year, where we gave everybody a platform to speak, um, Ted Davis Jr. was there. He was asked pointedly by WBCT's John Evans, uh, would you change the law? And I believe we played a clip of that last week. Um, but to sum it up, he basically said, I support the law as it is. I'm paraphrasing. Um, he said, I support the law as it is. I wouldn't vote to change it. Is that accurate? That is. And he added that he would not be bullied. And again, I'm paraphrasing. But he said he would not change his vote based on pressure from the Speaker of the House. He didn't name Tim Moore, but he meant Tim Moore. And he said that in the past, Moore had pressured him to vote a certain way along party lines and that Davis had said no. And so that's the reason, right? So we had this very narrow legislative math because of Trisha Cotham's defection from the Democratic to the Republican Party. Um, so Governor Cooper went on an all-out publicity slash social media blitz to try mm -hmm. and target four representatives, um, including Cotham and Davis. But Davis was probably the most likely target, as we talked about before, because Davis was the only one who had explicitly said he would not change the law. 
uh, Cooper also targeted Michael Lee, which seemed like a fool's errand because what Lee had explicitly said he was going to do is very close to what he ended up doing. Yes, there were some details. There were some meaningful details. But we know that Lee was negotiating with harder line Republicans. And so the mm-hmm. fact that it wasn't a carbon copy isn't really a great argument. But Davis, that seemed like fair game. And yeah. so we were all waiting to see how Davis would vote. He did end up um, now Davis didn't vote for the uh, bill when it passed the House. The Republicans had enough people to just pass the bill. So Davis was absent. He certainly didn't dissent, but he didn't vote in favor of it because he wasn't there. So mm-hmm. people thought maybe there's a ice cube chance in hell that maybe Davis will um, will actually find a way to not be there because that's all he had to do was not be there for the vote because we don't, as you've said in the past press many times, we don't have proxy voting. So if you're not on the floor, you don't get to vote. So yeah. it's not a, so by now the uh, there are no spoilers. Davis um, did show up and he did vote to override the veto, and he gave a very interesting ex- explanation for why he did this. I do want to know yeah. one, I do want to note one thing. There is a, a historical irony here, in that in North Carolina it's a bit easier for the General Assembly to override vetoes. In many states, it requires a two thirds majority to override a gubernatorial veto. Um, in North Carolina, which is one of the last states to give the governor veto power, um, it, it only it takes a, just a three-fifths majority to override. So it's much easier for the General Assembly to slap down a veto, to override it. And the architect of that deal was Governor Cooper, back when he... <laughs> so he is, unfortunately, the chickens have come home to roost for him, unfortunately. But yeah. right, So back to Davis. He, this was his explanation, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I am paraphrasing fairly, I believe. He said that, well, he said he never promised anything, which as journalists who get weaselly answers from people all across the political spectrum, this is a new high bar for like, what do we have to do? Do we need a signed affidavit from these people? Like, how many constitutions and Bibles do we need to stack and have them swear on during public forums before what they say is what they say? Yeah, and I actually have his statement pulled up. So, yeah, I'll, I'll read that. He said, I did not specifically, quote, it's in quotes, promise anything. Um, I, again, you know, you you were asked point blank, what will you do? And that was what you said you would do. So did you say I promise or I pinky promise or, you know, no, but you said you were going to do something. Um, and his argument here kind of circling back to what you said he wasn't there for the vote on passing this so he's going based off a technicality now saying well every other member said they would vote for it i did what i said and did not vote to change the present law because he wasn't there by not voting this is hit this is quote now by not voting against sb20 i did not go against my fellow caucus members um so you know he didn't, you know, he didn't become an outcast by not voting for it. But as you mentioned, they had the votes to do it um, without him. So it wasn't really necessary. But the veto override, which he was there and did vote for, is a different story. Um, and yeah, so so that's kind of where we left off. And then when it came down to what, what does he have to say about voting to override the veto, though? I mean, that's you know, essentially you are voting to change the law, but in in this explanation here, um, 
I guess he doesn't see it as such. He was voting on a veto override, not on SB 20. He didn't vote to support SB 20. So he maintains that, you know, he didn't go against his fellow caucus members and he didn't go against his campaign, not promise. Um, it's the kind of semantic wrangling I haven't seen since Bill Clinton argued what is meant. Yes, what is is. And um, look, so his point of view is that um, voting for the bill in the House initially would have been going back on his word. But voting for the veto was a totally separate thing. But it's clear, it's clear to me, at least, that even he doesn't totally believe that or doesn't think other people would believe that. Because his sort of secondary line of defense was that, well, I had to vote against I had to vote to override the veto because Cooper bullied me. And I do want to talk about that for one second, because I've heard people in the Democratic and Republican Party criticize Cooper's lack of statecraft. He's not Lyndon Johnson. He is not he's not known for bringing enemies into a back room at a at a fancy bar and getting them to hash out a deal. And he, there's some strong reporting that he didn't reach out to these four Republicans before he went on a social media bill. He just put them on blast and hoped for the best. And we could debate whether or not that was a good policy. But I could see if you are you know, a longtime legislator and, and you could say, hey, you should have called me first. But mm-hmm. was there any chance that Ted Davis would have been swayed by Cooper? Probably not. And also... This is a man who said, I will not be bullied by Tim Moore, one of the most powerful political leaders in North Carolina. So if Ted Davis was unwilling or if Ted Davis said, you, my principles are immune from pressure from from Tim Moore, but a little social media bullying from Governor Cooper and all of a sudden the principles go out the window because you've got to retaliate. And also, if you really believe that women had the right to get an abortion up to 20 weeks, you're willing to sacrifice that to trade political blows with Cooper. None of, none of that looks Great. And I promise you I would say this about a Democrat who flip-flopped as spectacularly as Ted Davis has on this. Yeah. And, you know, here's the other thing where, again, paraphrasing, but where he did mention that he's going to vote his conscience, basically, and not be, you know, bullied or manipulated by the by the Speaker of the House, whatever his language was, where it was pretty clear. He said, I'm not going to do what someone tells me to do. But then in his statement, third graph from the bottom he says as for my caucus i knew that everyone other than me was going to vote for the override and i was not going to turn my back on my fellow caucus members so that is a little bit of peer pressuring as an explanation like everyone else was doing it and i wasn't going to turn my back on them but you don't have to agree with everything your party does i mean i certainly i i am independent i'm happy to say that you can check the voter records um but i certainly don't agree with everything even the people i agree with think i mean that's okay and in politics to me it's more frightening it's terrifying to see people vote as a block when you know that they have openly said things that they don't agree that they don't agree with what they're voting for but yet they're unwilling to go against their caucus um to me, that's what that's what we need in elected officials. And I think that's what the people want is people that are willing to go against the grain when their conscience says. And if he truly believed this was the best move and no, he knows what the impacts of the veto override were. It's not like, well, I didn't vote for Senate Bill 20. OK, but you, you still did what you did. Um, you said one thing during your campaign. You said you would not vote. You would vote to keep the laws the same. 
I guess there wasn't a vote to keep the laws the same if you want to go on technicalities here. Um, so you can't really say you did that either. Um, but that whole part in there that just says I wasn't about to go against my fellow caucus members. Um, it just shows that, you know, that it, that is that peer pressure that you that you said you weren't going to give into, um, in, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, I think that's really all I can say about that um, without being too critical and opining here. Because, again, we were told this to our faces. We were moderators of this panel. Um, you know, we we are not making things up. You can go back, watch the video. I mean, he said that he wouldn't do what he did. Um, but now he's going on a technicality that he didn't do what he said he wasn't going to do. So, yeah, and we'll leave it there. Yeah. And, and uh, the last thing I'll say about it is this, is that, look, Tim Moore telegraphed the kind of bill he wanted. Phil Berger telegraphed the kind of bill he wanted. Michael Lee wrote an editorial, sorry, an opinion piece in the Star News about what he wanted to do. These politicians were all very clear about the kind of legislation they wanted to see. And we could agree or disagree with it, but they were very forthright. And they delivered to their constituents, to at least the people who voted for them, the kind of legislation they said they would. And so Davis, yeah. the own goldness of this all, the the self-inflicted woundness of this whole thing is what is what puzzles me. And my my only sort of speculative guess about, about why is that Davis is in a very purple district um, where Democrats will never vote for him and Republicans will probably always vote for him. And the difference was made by unaffiliated voters who might be swayed by someone who says, I'm an independent thinker and I won't be pushed around by the Speaker of the House. And... Hopefully those unaffiliated voters remember what they saw on Tuesday. Yeah, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. I'm sure this will be challenged in uh, federal court, state courts, and I I would be very surprised if it's not, but we'll get to that bridge if and when we cross it. Um, But let's wrap this up with something else um, that we want to talk about that is very near and dear to our hearts and more uh, specifically uh, Rachel Keith over there at WHQR um, has done a phenomenal job. I feel like she's Don Quixote sometimes fighting windmills and yelling into the void. Uh, but we're going to talk about CFCC for a second. Yeah. And, you know, we'll have more to say about this next week because we have some numbers to crunch. But I want to note that uh, we're recording this on Friday. So at last night's CFCC uh, board of Trustees meeting. Um, once again, Jim Morton was given a significant raise. Last night's meeting was was pointed in its contrast, where you had the new faculty association president and former school board member Nelson Bollier was basically begging for a ten percent raise for faculty. Um, the current one that's that looks like it might move forward is a four percent one, and this is coming from the state. And during the same meeting, sort of as a afterthought, the board voted to give President Jim Morton a 12% raise. It's a $38,000 raise, um, bringing his salary to $361,296. This follows a near-unanimous 10% raise last year. The only person who voted against that, we should note, Wraith Funderburk, was summarily executed <laughs> um, in a kangaroo court. And the year before that, he also got a 10% raise. So Jim Morton's salary has gone up considerably over the last couple of years. He is now within 
within striking distance of the salaries of uh, four-year college presidents, which traditionally have been much higher. And yeah. we have to remind people that Jim Morton did not have the qualifications of previous college presidents. There was no search committee for him. Mm-hmm. This was a, a, a fairly unorthodox process of hiring him. He has been plagued by allegations of a toxic workplace, and he seems to be made completely out of Teflon. And yeah. I do not... I, I noted that I think our reporter, Grace Vitalione, was the only one at the meeting last night who was sitting in for Rachel, who usually covers these, and she's covered this exhaustively. But yep. I didn't see a lot of other media outlets there, and I'm not blaming them because it has been hard to get any traction with the public about this story. And that's not the only reason you cover a story. You cover a story because it's important. Important. But, but I will say that this has not been, with the exception, you know, CFCC, or, um, sorry, uh, WECT has been good about staying on the story, even though Ann McAdams, who was really getting into it, left. But it's been it's been hard to convince the public that something out of the ordinary is happening here, but it really does seem like something out of the ordinary is happening here. Yeah, I think there's a general apathy um, for for this board. It doesn't impact, it, 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 put it this way, um, direct impacts, or I guess I should even say, because it is direct impacts, you have tax dollars going to this, so that is a direct impact to every single person who pays taxes. Um, I guess visual impacts that are directly impacting people on a day-to-day basis. Like let's say a, um, you know, a zoning permit that's going to increase traffic is going to get a lot of people in a, in a city council or a county commissioner's meeting um, because it impacts you. And that's what drives people to go to governmental meetings. Cause let's be real. A lot of these are boring. So in order to get you out of bed on a Thursday night to go sit and watch, um, you know, watch someone get a 30 whatever percent raise or however much it was. Um, If it's not impacting you, if your taxes aren't going up, people don't really seem to care. People, I, I, to be honest with you, I think I've maybe seen one or two people bring it up in a county commissioner's meeting, um, bring up, you know, CFCC as a whole. I'm not saying it hasn't been more than that, but I don't really see it. Um, People just kind of let them live and let live in a laissez-faire kind of way that just hands off. It's not bothering me. My taxes aren't directly going up, even though they probably are when you have to buy a Bank of America building. Um, you just don't see it directly. Um, and so I think that's where the general apathy of the public comes from. People aren't holding their elected officials accountable for these actions either. Um and to be quite frank with you, a lot of these people that are on the board that are elected officials are getting off scot-free. Um, you know, Jonathan Barfield has been on that, commission, County Commissioner Jonathan Barfield. Um, I don't know off the top of my head whether what other elected officials are there. It's uh, Bill Rivenbark is on there as well. Who's the yeah. uh, the county chair and look, a number of other a number of other folks who are prominent members of the community. So there's there's other ways to hold people accountable, I will say. But um, yeah, like I said, we'll we'll have more on this next time. But it's it's just w- worth making a point that someone with this much of a cloud hanging over them could get a thirty eight thousand dollar raise with no discussion, unanimous vote, and the entire region just blinks. Um, well. Yeah. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit sad. So, put it this way: if your county commissioners decided to give themselves a thirty eight thousand dollar raise, 
we might have some bodies turning up um, at, to speak, not let me be clear on that. You might have some people turning up at the county commissioner meeting to speak and voice their opinions on that, whereas you do it at the community college and, you know, there, it's a very small minority of people in Wilmington when you look at population that go that attend this college, um, people just don't seem to care. And that is um, that's that's what our job is, is to to make you care to to at least put it out there and show you that these things are happening whether or not our viewers listeners readers decide to care is on them but you can't say you were uninformed about it because that is where the apathy comes from and that is why things like this continue if they're again like like i mentioned at the start of this show with the um with the cons i am open to hearing a valid reason for this and i will consider that i we will be more than happy to have you on here and point to the data that proves this is a solid point we don't have to agree we don't have to disagree but i want to see it you know i don't just want this happening in back rooms like everything at cfcc has seemed to happen yeah and i think that's a good place to leave it we'll see you next week all right